in 2015, I attended what was called the Parliament of World Religions. It was held in Salt Lake City, Utah. It was a huge event. I went there to present a seminar about the Dubai Muslim Christian Dialogues, which I had helped to pioneer here in Dubai with a number of other Christian leaders in the city. The Parliament of World Religions was one of the most interesting events I've ever been to. It was like a world's fair of religions. Kind of imagine um, Global Village where all the pavilions are a different religion and they're advertising and promoting their religion. The Parliament's goal, as stated on their website, is to cultivate harmony among the world's spiritual traditions and foster engagement with institutions in order to achieve a more peaceful, just, and sustainable world. There were Buddhist monks who were chanting. There were Hindu gurus praying. There were Islamic whirly dervishes dancing. There were Muslim clerics and Mormon elders roaming the convention center, standing behind the exhibits, talking to attendees, teaching breakout seminars. And all this enormous expenditure of time and money was for the sake of unity. Yet every different religion represented there had different ideas about who God was, whether there was a God in fact, what man's purpose is, why the world is so messed up, and what can be done to fix it. There was physical unity at the Parliament of World Religions, but there was no spiritual unity. Jesus, on the other hand, came to save people, and in so doing, He brought spiritual unity and enabled mankind to know God and His love that passes all understanding forever. And Jesus promises that one day there will be not only spiritual unity amongst those who believe in Him, but physical unity. We will be together in the same place, worshiping and loving Jesus under the Lordship of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Those are goals of Jesus. And that's what Jesus was praying about in the final part of His prayer on the night before He was betrayed and went to the cross. That's the passage we're looking at in John chapter 17, and you'll be helped to Follow along with me in that passage. Turn to John 17. The gospel of John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. So it's in the last third of a Bible if you have both an Old and a New Testament. Chapter 17 is what we're looking at. Verses just 20 to 26. Follow along with me as I read. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me 
that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we study this text together. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you're our rock. You're our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. What I want you to see from this final seven verses in Jesus's prayer is that Christ's gospel unifies Christians and makes God's glorious love known. Christ's gospel unifies Christians and makes God's glorious love known. There's just two points to the sermon this afternoon. Our gospel unity and God's glorious love. Our gospel unity and God's glorious love. First of all, we're going to consider our gospel unity. We see that in verses 20 through 23. So in Jesus' prayer so far, He's prayed asking the Father to glorify Him so that He could glorify the Father by giving eternal life to those who believe in Him. Then He prayed for His apostles to be kept in God's name, protected from Satan, and for them to be sanctified in the truth. And specifically, he said, your word is truth. Now, we should all thank God that Jesus didn't stop there because as Jesus ends his prayer, he prays for you and I. That's what he's doing here in these verses. He's praying for you and I. Up to this point, he's primarily been praying for his apostles that are gathered there in the room with him on the night of the Passover. But now he prays for us. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you're a Christian, you've believed in the gospel because of the word that these apostles have proclaimed and have been preserved for us in God's word. This is the Lord Jesus, the God-man. He knows all things, including all the intimate details of your life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has prayed for you. We're blessed to actually read His prayer for us in the pages of Scripture. And it doesn't matter that we live 2,000 years after His death and resurrection. If you believe in Christ, then you know that Christ knows your name now, and He knew your name then. He knows all things. He knows all people. 
It says in the book of Ephesians, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Just last week, I spoke to a woman whom I've really only met face-to-face a few times. She lives here in Dubai. And yet, because of my influence in her sister's life, she told me, my husband and I pray for you every day. Every day. This woman prays for me every day. I barely know her. And she says she prays for me. I, I, I almost didn't believe it. I was stunned. You know, it is one of the highest forms of love that one person can show to another to pray for them. To utilize the great privilege of access that we have through Christ's death and resurrection. And to go to the throne of God with requests for one another. Now, Some of you may struggle to embrace the truth that God loves you with a personal love. It's not like God just says, well, I love this crowd. I don't really know all your names, but I love you. No, Jesus loves you individually if he's saved you individually. This prayer should assure you that Jesus' love is real for you. His love is personal. He loves you just as much as he loved those apostles on that night that he prayed 2,000 years ago. And Scripture tells us this was just the beginning of His prayers for us. Even now, He's speaking to the Father for you. He hasn't stopped praying for you. Scripture teaches us that He intercedes at the right hand of God the Father for all the believers. And when you feel alone and nobody knows what you're going through, oh, brothers and sisters, remember, remember, Jesus knows Jesus knows He prayed for you, and He's continuing to pray for you. What did Jesus pray for us? Well, He prayed for unity among all those who would believe in Him. Look there in verse 21, He says that they all may be one. And then in verse 22, He echoes it again, that they may be one even as we are one. And what's the end goal of their oneness, their unity? Well, it's so that even more people in the world would know and believe in Christ. It's there in verses 21 and 23. You see, at the end of 21, and so so that the world may believe that you have sent me, and so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Jesus prayed for our unity, but it was a specific kind of unity. It's a unity that comes through the word of the apostles. That's what it says in verse 20, through their word. It's a unity founded on the glory that he says he's given to them. Now, that's an interesting phrase, an interesting idea for Jesus to say he's given them his glory. We know that we're going to be glorified when we finally see Jesus face to face at the end of time and He comes to take us to be with Him. I think what this means is that the glory that Jesus is speaking of here is the full revealing of God's character in Christ and His saving work on the cross. That is glorious, what Jesus has revealed to them. 
In fact, John says in the very first chapter of his gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. Jesus has revealed God perfectly and fully. We can summarize the basis of our unity then like this. It's rooted in the message of the good news of the glorious Son of God and His work of salvation. That's what our unity is based on. The unity of all God's redeemed people is not a a physical unity, but a spiritual unity based on our shared belief in Christ in His atoning work on the cross and in His resurrection. And this unity is brought about by the Holy Spirit who indwells all true believers. The same Holy Spirit is in every true believer. And that group of people the Bible calls the church. Jesus said to the disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Ah, but which church is Jesus talking about? You're thinking, I hope it's my church. (laughs) Well, historically, Christians have referred to all true believers in every place and in every time as the universal church. You may hear it referred to as the Catholic church. In fact, in a later edition of that Nicene Creed that we recited together earlier in the service, it speaks about the one holy, universal, or Catholic and apostolic church. Those are four attributes of the true church of Jesus Christ. But when we say that creed together, we use the word universal so as not to confuse that with the Roman Catholic Church. So, for example, the universal church, then, we should understand is invisible. It's all people in all places and all times that have truly believed in Christ. And it has never, ever assembled together yet. It will one day. But the vast majority of of ways that the word church is used in the Bible is to describe local churches. Local churches like Covenant Hope Church. Specific people in specific places and times who physically gather together for the preaching of God's Word and to obey Jesus' commands to baptize new believers and take the Lord's Supper together. That's really the definition of a church, a true church. The local church is where the universal church becomes visible visible and physically unified as well as spiritually unified. We're just one local outpost of the universal church. Now, you may be asking yourself, if there's unity in the church like Jesus prayed for, why are there so many denominations? Denominations arose because people were searching the Scriptures for direction from God about how the church should be run, who has authority in the church, and to understand some of the secondary doctrines that the, church, that the Bible teaches, secondary and tertiary doctrines. And they began to differ over those secondary and tertiary doctrines, not primary doctrines. All the churches that agree on the primary doctrines, which are doctrines related to the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the authority of Scripture, and salvation by faith in Christ alone, those 
are churches and believers that have spiritual unity even though they're in a variety of different denominations. And that's why we as a church can pray for churches that agree with us on the gospel but disagree with us perhaps about secondary or tertiary issues because what's most important to us is the true gospel. That's the unity that Jesus was praying for amongst his followers and for us. And so Anglican or Presbyterian churches that they baptize babies. We believe that the scripture teaches that only professing adults should be baptized. But this is a secondary issue. Now, it's not an unimportant issue, but it is not as important as the gospel because the gospel makes the difference between salvation and no salvation. If those Anglican and Presbyterian churches are evangelical, in other words, they preach the true gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone, then we share the kind of unity with them that Christ was praying for in this prayer. We're unified with them. And we should be charitable and kind toward them as brothers and sisters in Christ, even as we maybe discuss with them about those secondary and tertiary issues we differ on. The minute, though, a church distorts the true gospel, then our unity is lost with them. And we would warn Christians from associating with those churches. Those are not true churches. But don't miss the point. Don't miss the point in what Jesus is praying here. True Christian unity is based on the divinity of Christ and the message of salvation that we find in the apostles' records written in the New Testament. That's true between churches, and it's true inside of individual churches as well. So in our passage, Jesus is praying for unity between individual believers first and foremost, of course. Our covenant membership together with one another here in Covenant Hope Church is where we live that out, that unity in the gospel. From what Jesus prays, we can see that our unity... is expressed through loving relationships, and it shouldn't be based on anything but God and His gospel. Nothing else should be the basis of our unity. Our gospel unity must bridge differences in culture, in gender, in nationality, between rich and poor, all kinds of other worldly differences that exist between us, or even perhaps simple preference differences between us, like style of music that we prefer. Be careful, brothers and sisters. If you think to yourself, I just can't be friends with those people who are from fill in the blank, then you're not living in line with the gospel unity that Jesus was praying for here. The gospel bridges the differences between us. You're not helping to show the world the power of Christ and the gospel if you're only building friendships with people who are like you. And we, of all churches around the world, have an incredible opportunity to display that kind of gospel unity across differences because, boy, look around, friends, we are different. And yes, brothers and sisters, it can be hard to relate across cultures for the sake of the gospel. It's more tiring 
and it requires more of you than relating to people who are like you. Absolutely. But it is worth it so that we truly live out what Jesus was praying for us on that night before he went to the cross. Even as Jesus prays for all the people who would believe in him to be unified in him and in his gospel, we can see that our oneness in Christ is something that's an ongoing work of the Spirit that won't be complete or perfected until Christ comes back and makes all things new, including us. You see that there in verse 23. Jesus prays that they may become perfectly one. It's a process. And so we must continue working at our unity in Christ as a church and here in this church. In fact, that's one of our covenant commitments that you make when you become members of Covenant Hope Church. You probably know it if you've been a member for a little while. Our covenant is a summary of some of the most important ways that church members have pledged to live together with one another in line with biblical teaching. It's things that we say we're going to do, ways that we're going to live with each other. And that covenant reads like this near the very beginning of the covenant, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Work and pray. Work and pray. Brothers and sisters, it takes work and it takes prayer. What does it mean to work for the unity of the Spirit? Well, it means that maintaining unity in our church must be a priority for every member. Unity, of course, it makes, it makes for a pleasant life together. It results in a generally happy church. And it makes, actually, congregational meetings go more quickly. But ultimately, we work toward unity because it reflects God's character and His being. Not because it feels good to us particularly. Because it displays God's wisdom and power. In fact, it's going to be arduous and a lot of work at different times to maintain the unity of the Spirit in our midst. But it's worth it, brothers and sisters. One of the keys to maintaining unity among us is going to be learning how to disagree about some things and still love one another well. I mean, we can't possibly hope that we're going to agree about everything. For example, a gracious gospel attitude would be to not assume the worst motives in someone with whom you're disagreeing. We should instead pursue discussion about our disagreements with trusting hearts, desiring to understand one another, to ask questions, to explore. How did you come to the particular conclusion that you've come to, brother or sister? Help me understand. And we must speak truthfully and lovingly to one another. Truthfully, that's easy to do sometimes for the bolder ones amongst us. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth, but we must speak the truth in love, especially in those moments when we disagree. And we need to watch our hearts so that disagreements don't turn to bitterness, bitterness and, then, and then to actively becoming divisive in the church. That's a danger for all of us. You know, Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, it has strong words for those who create division. 
Paul wrote to Titus and said, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. One last word about unity. If Jesus prayed for it, then we must pray for it too. We, we've been, we have scheduling and we have location limitations as a church. Our church location is not ideal for many of you who live on the other side of Dubai. We wish that could change. We continue to pray that it would change. We have prayer meetings, which are twice a month after our main service. That's not convenient. Kids get tired. Pastors get tired. But it's the only time that we pray for those things in our congregation that will build unity among us. Some total, we probably pray 40 minutes in a month together in the same room. I encourage you to come as often as you can. In the end, this gospel unity that Jesus has prayed for us and which we work to maintain and perfect is also that more people in the world will come to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord so that they will be drawn up into the love of God and love of Christ. If we proclaim the true gospel which saves people and yet our community is divided by rivalries and fights, much like many of the churches that the New Testament authors wrote to, the world will doubt the power of God and the wisdom of God, no matter how loudly we proclaim it. But if our community displays loving gospel unity, then our message of salvation in the one true living God will ring true to the world. And look out. People will come to Christ. Jesus prayed for our gospel unity in verses 20 and 22, 23. And he finished his prayer then by asking the Father that we would experience God's glorious love. That's the second point this afternoon. The first point was our gospel unity. The second point is God's glorious love. And we see that there in verses 24 to 26. What an amazing thing that Jesus prayed for in 24 to 26. You know, there are just a few verses. Let me read them again to you. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus was praying this for those apostles who, before the cock would crow three times in the morning, will have scattered and abandoned Jesus. And he was praying those things for us too. Jesus wants to be with you. He longs for you to see Him face to face, to experience His glorious presence, to be totally immersed in His holy and pure love forever. Brothers and sisters, there will be nothing like it 
that you've experienced in your life? Is that the end goal of the gospel that you believe in, to be with Jesus? Some people in this world, they only want the gospel to prevent them from going to hell. But they're not particularly drawn to Jesus as the main attraction of heaven. Or equally worse, some want the gospel to give them all the best things of this life now, health, wealth, and business success. But Jesus is an afterthought. John Piper writes, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? How would you answer that question? Is that the heaven you want to go to? The end goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we might be eternally separated from our sin and everything evil and instead enjoy the love of Christ and His presence finally gathered with the universal church. And it won't end. Brothers and sisters, that's what the gospel promises to us for the future and eternity. This gospel that's a good news for people who were rebels of God, who in every way had turned their backs on Him. We deserved His punishment because of our sin. And yet God in His great love knowing that there was nothing that we could do to bridge the gap between us and a holy God, sent His Son into the world to live a perfect life and to go to the cross, sacrificing Himself to pay the penalty for our sin and rising to new life so that we would have the promise of the very same new life. This is the good news of the gospel, and it promises not just the forgiveness of sin, but the results of the forgiveness of sin, being with God forever. Oh, brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden because of their sin. They were separated. And every single one of us has been born and lived our lives, in a sense, outside the garden. But Jesus Christ opens the way for us to re-enter and come back in. And guess what? It won't be a garden anymore. It will be a garden city. And we will be with him. And he will wipe away every tear. There will be no sadness, no wickedness, no ability for us to sin even. Praise God. J.C. Ryle says about heaven, if faith has been pleasant, much more will sight. And if hope has been sweet, much more will certainty be. Randy Alcorn in his book about heaven says, The best of life on earth is but a glimpse of heaven, and the worst of life on earth is but a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. But for non-Christians, this life is the closest they will come to heaven.
If you're not a Christian, you're always welcome here at Covenant Hope Church. I wonder what you thought the big benefit was for Christians in following Christ. What did you think that we got out of it by trusting in Him and giving our lives to Him? Some people who aren't Christians imagine some kind of party in hell with all their friends, that maybe that's even a better place to go to. Reunited with people to experience all the forbidden pleasures they didn't get enough of in this life. But don't be fooled. There's no friendship in hell. Friendship is of God. There is no pleasure in hell if you're continually experiencing the wrath of God as your judge. Pleasure was God's invention, not Satan's. But heaven, ah, heaven, that's where friendship will be perfected. That's when and where we'll know love supreme because that's where Jesus is. That's where pleasure will be maximized and pure. You can have the promise of being with Jesus and basking in His glory forever and ever, my friend. Turn to Jesus now. Put your faith in Him. Confess that you're a sinner and that there's no way that you would be able to stand before Him on the day of judgment unless He forgives your sin and you get to share in His righteousness. Won't you trust in Christ? What's stopping you from doing that now? Jesus' words in verses 24 through 26 should give us great assurance that our salvation is certain and guaranteed. If you're trusting Christ, then He's asked the Father that one day you would be with Him and see His glory. Do you think that the Father would deny His one and only beloved Son that request? Oh, no. No, no, the Son who went willingly to the cross to shed His blood for our atonement? No, this is the Son who said that He would lay His life down for the sheep. This is the Son who breathed His last on the cross and said, It is finished. Done. It's completed. It's accomplished. If you're glorying in Christ as Lord and Savior now, brothers and sisters, you can be assured that one day you will glory in Him then. We will know the love of Christ when we go to be with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. But in verse 26, Christ promises that He's made the name of God known and will continue to make it known so that the love which, which the Father loved the Son would be in us. Paul prayed that the church in Ephesus would know that the love that love more and more and see it expressed in their church relationships. And he prayed a prayer to that effect. In Ephesians chapter 3, he said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That love should mark us 
Covenant Hope Church. If there are hurting people in our midst who are willing to let others know about their hurt and pain, it shouldn't be too long until one of us reaches out to encourage them and and helps them to draw near to Christ and remember the good news of the gospel. But it requires all of us actively looking for ways to love one another, to act on that love that God has poured out into our hearts through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Hospitality should characterize us as a church. Not only should our homes and apartments be open to one another and newcomers, our lives should be open to others as well. We should be looking to serve, rather looking to be served. How do you view yourself in the church as a member? Church members are providers of ministry rather than consumers of ministry. Christ promises in this last verse that He will continue to make God's name known to us and that He would be in us. And He does do that through the Holy Spirit. The seal and comforter who comes and enables the Son and Father to make their home with us. Christ continues to make Himself known to us as we worship Him with all our fellow church members on Sundays. When we read God's Word daily and pray to Him in response to what we've read and and the needs that we're facing, when we share the gospel with our family members and our work colleagues, God will inflame our hearts with the joy and love and show those around us the love that is there in the Father and the Son and the Spirit that we share in. Simply getting thousands of people together from different religions to gather in one convention center, like at the Parliament of World Religions, it's it's not the kind of unity and love that God sent Christ into the world to reveal to us. It's not the kind of unity that Jesus was praying for here. Only believers in the gospel that gather in true churches can know that unity. God is bringing it to completion in us. We can be certain that He will because that's what Jesus prayed for and it will be answered. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You prayed for us, that the unity that we're experiencing now is credit to You and the unity that we will grow in in the coming weeks and months and years will be credit to You because of Your work in us. Oh Lord, praise You that You have filled us with the Spirit and poured out Your love into our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would experience it more, that we would believe it in deeper and deeper faith, and that we would share it with the world. Oh, Lord, would you do that through us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.